Welcome to the pilot episode of the What A Pain podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. We have both been working in the field of paediatric chronic pain for many years. Glyn as an anaesthetist and myself as a clinical psychologist. How are you, Glyn? Yeah, good, thanks. Excited to be doing this pilot and talking with you. And also to our first inaugural guest, Alison Bliss, whilst we delve into the subject of pain. How about you? Yeah, very good, thanks. As you know, we've been discussing doing this podcast for a while, and it's great to finally get it underway. The presentation and treatment of pain in both adults and children is a fascinating and multifaceted topic, which has grown not only as a speciality, but also in terms of our knowledge base, at a very rapid pace over the last few decades. As a consequence, it's a diagnosis increasingly recognised by all healthcare professionals, and one that is commonly reported and discussed within the general population through mainstream and other media. Over our years in pain management, Conrad and I have had the pleasure of working and collaborating with, being taught by and having access to the academic output of many talented and interesting individuals working within and outside the speciality. And in this podcast, we will look to start informal conversations with many varied and diverse individuals who have and continue to shape, develop and lead the speciality. We want them to help us explain the many different aspects that contribute to this complex presentation of pain that we all see. In addition, we will see if we can get to know them a bit, what makes them tick, and how their experiences have shaped them. We will also chat between the two of us, bring our thoughts on what is currently happening in the speciality and interesting, hopefully, items we have come across. It will also be great to hear from you, our listeners, with your comments and thoughts, which we can also discuss and reflect on. Please email us on whatapainpodcast at gmail.com. But before we go to our first guest, Conrad, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm actually from the Netherlands, and I went to university in the centre of the Netherlands in a city called Utrecht. I then went on to Oxford, and I did my clinical training here. I joined the Department of Children's Psychological Medicine at the Children's Hospital here, and very slowly we set up a department called the Oxford Centre for Children and Young People in Pain. And what about you, Glenn? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. I've got a Welsh background, Conrad, but I've sort of spent my time living between Wales and London. I went to university in London and have ended up working at Great Ormond Street. I'm a paediatric anaesthetist by training, as you said. But over the years of doing anaesthesia, I've developed an interest in pain and have become the lead for the pain service at Great Ormond Street. And how's your Welsh, Glyn? Very poor. You're not going to get me to speak Welsh on the podcast. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I won't try. I won't try. I won't um, speak any Dutch in that. No. Okay, that's enough about us, Glyn. Let's carry on by talking about what we've been up to this week. We've just had an in-person meeting of a group that's been set up for the leads of paediatric chronic pain services in the United Kingdom. And we are recording this podcast at the end of the day. It's the first time we've been able to meet like this since the pandemic. Glyn, you convened the meeting. Why did you do that? Well, Conrad, as you know, the pandemic had multifactorial effects for all of us, um, especially in relation to work. And I think that it presented challenges to us as a paediatric chronic pain community that were very unique, but also they were challenges that were different in different parts of the country. And I think as a group, we all felt that we wanted some support, if you like, in what we were doing. So just in talking with yourself and with some other others of our colleagues, we decided to set up a meeting where we could all sit around and chat and talk through lots of things. And through the pandemic, we all found this incredibly helpful in helping us all keeping our services going, which we all did to a greater or lesser extent. And also how we got out of the pandemic and returned our services back to normal. 
and looked at the things that the pandemic taught us, which it did in so many ways. But now the pandemic is sort of over and we're all getting back to work again and our, our services are getting back up and running to normal levels. I think we all felt that this was a very useful group and it would be very good if we could carry on thinking how we could keep helping each other, how we could help promote paediatric pain sort of nationally and keep the profile of the speciality up. Glyn, shall we take this chat further with our first guest, Alison Bliss? Alison has also been with us at a meeting today and it will be really interesting to hear her thoughts on the day and we'll see where else the conversation will take us. We've come to the part of the podcast now where we've got a guest who's coming to have a conversation with us. And I'm delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Alison Bliss, who I've known for a long time, who's the head of the chronic pain service for children in Leeds, as well as being a paediatric anaesthetist. So, Alison, thank you for coming. Lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. And, Alison, we're going to ask guests in our podcast some questions that will hopefully tell us a little bit about them personally, but also about their interest in chronic pain. And so the first question is, Glyn... So what's your favourite place on earth and can you tell us why? I've been able to travel quite a lot, but I think at the end of the day, my favourite place is home. I'm quite a, quite fond of my family. I like to travel, I like to go back at the end of the day. And is home a specific place or it just happens to be where your family is? It's where my family is so at the moment, it's just outside Leeds. Alison, what is your favourite film and why? Favourite films are tricky because I'm not a big film fan. I'm more about a favourite book person and there isn't a single answer. So I very much love Tolkien and Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And I suppose if I had to pick a film or a set of films, I would probably pick The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Although Star Wars could be in there and so could Harry Potter. My house does nerd. Excellent. And a bit of Terry Pratchett. And a bit of Terry Pratchett. Absolutely. Sounds good. Would you not consider that nerd as well? Yeah, I would probably consider that nerd. I don't know that Terry Pratchett very well myself, I'll be honest. Actually, I feel Terry Pratchett is such an observer of people and people interactions that I actually recommend it. Everyone who comes to Paintinic about thinking about that role of the person in society and all those interactions and what drives our movement and our emotions, everybody should read Terry Pratchett if they're going to work in chronic pain. Sounds good. Yeah. And something that irritates you, and why does it irritate you? That is so easy. When I rule the world, every pair of ladies' trousers will have useful pockets. Useful (laughs) pockets? Useful pockets. Okay. We were just wondering, Alison, kind of what made you first get involved in pain and how? I think when I very first started anaesthetics, I was lucky enough to do my first placement in in Oldham, which at the time was the centre for regional anaesthesia. So straight away, there was a big interest in pain management and using interventional techniques. And I kept that interest through my training. And then I was lucky enough to go and work at the University of Michigan and spent a year working with Shova Malvia and Sandy Merkel, who were the team that developed the FLAC tool. So being able to work with them and look at their ethos of pain management in children was just phenomenal. And you can turn around from that. And what was it about their ethos that really appealed to you? It was about trying to find the voice of the child and actually understanding what the children were feeling and how you could assess that 
and to bring in the parents and the wider context of everything and put it all together, both for the acute pain and the chronic, moving on towards the chronic pain side of things as well. And is that something that you feel that you've been trained to do as an anaesthetist? No, as an anaesthetist, I felt you got more trained about that sort of the physiological bit of it. Put this needle here, give that drug there. Yeah. But actually understanding about how pain influenced people, how it influenced the children, how it influenced the families. You really need a people person for that. And Sandy Merkel, who was the nurse specialist out there, was phenomenal. It was just a pleasure to do the ward rounds with her and soak up her expertise and learn from her. What were some of the things that she said or that she recommended or that you particularly liked? I particularly liked the way she would... She never kind of stood there and went, what's your pain score? It was always much more about what their experience was and what they could do and what they couldn't do and how they were looking forward to it and what things helped them and what things didn't help them. So it was kind of like bringing all of that information out and together, but more as a conversation rather yeah, than yeah. that harsh sort of medical interaction and even though it didn't take her a long time it never felt like she was really hurrying to get round and that was a that's a great skill to learn from and did you find that easy then to you know having watched someone deliver something that you thought was a fantastic way of interacting how easy did you then find it to put into your practice i didn't find it naturally easy but it was so aspirational inspirational it made you work at it and see the value of doing it, you know, with my anaesthetic hat on, whatever pressure there was to go and move on and see the next patient or start the list or whatever, about just having that moment to take the time. And I, I don't regret doing that at all. And do you feel it's something that you've been able to keep doing through the whole of your career? Because you know, we become more time pressured as time has gone on. We seem to have less time for that sort of thing, especially as an anaesthetist. Absolutely. It's hard. And there are days when you're not as successful and there are days when you have to stop and remind yourself what you're trying to do and go back to it. And sometimes it's kind of, it's actually better when you're teaching or have somebody with you to try and share that to make sure that the bits that you found were helpful and inspirational to try and inspire them to take that forward in their practice and keep it going and kind of resist against the time pressures that we're under. And after having done that year away, did you take a job in Leeds that was pain right from the beginning or was it something you developed it's something we developed. There was no pain service when we first started. As such, there were a couple of consultant colleagues who had an interest and started to, you know, wander around the wards and try and just do more than just a postdoc visit and kind of keep an eye on it. And so in some ways that was quite a good place to be because you could build it up and gather people around you who also had an interest and pursue it and look for the funding and build it and move on from that seeing those complex patients on the ward as part of the acute pain work, but also taking it out and then realising you needed more time and being able to see them in the clinic and then bringing other people in. So we really built it up from scratch and that's been fantastic to achieve. How long has that been? If that's not a rude question, obviously. <laughs> 22 years to get to where we are now. 22 years. And so what do you have now? I mean, if you started with nothing, what's the size of your service? So our service now has a consultant the acute pain round five days a week we do a seven day service with our nursing team eight till six and in the chronic pain clinic we now have a new patient clinic every week we have between two and three follow-up clinics every week 
we have physiotherapy, psychology, occupational therapy, expert pharmacy, our clinical nurse specialists. We offer some interventions when they're needed and we try when we can to offer some inpatient work when it's needed as well. That's the next bit that we're looking for our funding of. And do you think you'll get inpatient? That's a harder question. The acute hospital where we work is very much more about having patients in for the shortest period of time moving out. And I also don't know where it should sit because a lot of the work probably doesn't need to be with us in the acute hospital. We probably need to look at having facilities elsewhere to do that work. So it's a work in progress. And before we get in, we're going to talk a little bit more about subjects like this in a minute. So just one more quick question to get to know you a bit. What's your favourite book or article about pain, apart from Terry Pratchett? I was lucky enough to be asked to write a commentary for the series of landmark papers books. And the paper that I looked at was the review by Goodman and McGrath. So it's quite an old paper now, but it was probably the first one where they went off and had a look at just what actually was out there about paediatric pain, which the short answer was not very much. And actually, the quality wasn't very good, but it was the way they went through it and looked at it. And probably were the first people to ask the questions to sort of say, well, actually, we're not very good at working out what the young people themselves feel. And that link between pain and disability isn't what we think it is. And we don't really know where it's going. And that link between a parent with pain and a child with pain. And so they just really kind of opened the door to where we should be. And I don't think that paper gets acknowledged enough for actually asking questions to make us think about what we're doing. So if you haven't read it, I'd go and recommend everyone to read it. We just had our first paediatric chronic pain leads meeting here in Oxford, Alison. And you were there, Clint, you were there, of course. And we had a really, really interesting mix of talks. There's a talk about the management of complex CRPS in children. There's a talk about quantitative sensory testing, a talk about distress, high distress and self-harm in adolescents with chronic pain. A very interesting talk about the challenges in current thinking in the treatment of children with complex conditions and perplexing presentations, and a talk about autism and chronic pain in young people. Alison, we're just wondering, what were your takeaways from today? I think my takeaways from the day, probably the most important one wasn't actually the content of the talk. It was the fact that we were able to come together as a group of passionate, interested people and speak face to face and share ideas. And that has been so, so important because we haven't been able to do it for so long. Not since the pandemic. Absolutely. I think the talks were phenomenal and the speakers had so much expertise and it was a pleasure to hear what they had to say. And some of it was quite confirming what we were worried about, but taking it to another level. So well, I think we've all seen in our clinics, there are so many young people who have aspects of their presentation that make us question about conditions like autistic spectrum conditions, either diagnosed or not diagnosed. There was a really powerful phrase that one of the speakers used about diagnostic overshadowing. And I thought that was a wonderful phrase for us to hold in our minds when we see these young people who are overwhelmed by their sensations and by their pain and how we help them find the way through it 
bearing in mind that for quite a lot of young people, this might be the first time that somebody thinks about this condition. And actually that has a much wider implication for their quality of life than just the tiny little bit of pain management that sits at the top of their problems. I completely agree with you. I really like that term. And a lot of our patients come to us not just with pain. They come to us with anxiety, with depression, with fatigue. Is a huge issue, nausea, of course, all kinds of physical sensations as well. So I really liked the idea of not just thinking about the pain, but thinking about the whole person. Absolutely. And I think the second big takeaway for me was the fact that we all shared how within our services, we are seeing this increasing complexity in the presentations. And there is so much more than just the pain. And it's affecting all of us. And I was particularly interested in the talk we had looking at those very difficult things around um, self-harm and suicidal ideation, and which we've all, all been worrying about. But some of the numbers that were presented actually really crystallised how big a problem this is. And most importantly, it got us talking, talking about how we can find solutions and how we as pain clinicians can then link in with other services, mental health services, schools, family support networks, to deal with that bigger problem of which the pain is only a small part. But one of the things that we learned as well today was that pain can be a significant part of that whole picture and that having pain can contribute to having those kinds of thoughts and, and maybe even acting on it. Absolutely. And it's one of the values of these sessions is helping us to acknowledge that and helping us to work out how we find the right support for these young people that might be outside of our personal skill set, but how we can access best in other services, which are often also very stretched and resourced, but to help them find the pathway, knowing the full gamut of what's out there and being, being a bit of a magpie for the sake of the self, really, going out and taking every little bit of help that can come, acknowledging there isn't going to be one thing out there that will cure everything. But actually, all those little bits put together are probably going to significantly improve the quality of life overall. And you mentioned complexity a little bit earlier. Do you have a good sense of why complexity may have increased over the last 10 years? Because that is something clearly that everybody reported, all the pain services in the UK reported complexity is increasing. Do you have a good sense of why that might be the case? I don't think I have a good sense of the underlying bits of it, but it's certainly been clear that those increases in trends that we'd been seeing then exponentially increased during the pandemic and afterwards. Although we also have to recognise that actually for a lot of children who were sat at home for a long period of time, there were some children for whom actually the stresses and the pressures of school and the school environment were a significant contributor. And for that group of people, some of their pain presentations were actually helped by that level of stress coming down. But there was an, a bigger cohort, I think, where actually being out of the routine, not being able to socialise, not having that interaction with their peers and others just allowed their disease to spiral down and pain become overwhelming. So it really seemed to polarise people. And my big worry now is that all those years of socialisation that were missed, that incredibly important interaction that helps the adolescents to develop, we're probably going to see that knock-on effect for some years to come from those children who had to grow up through it. And I'm sure that will add into our complexity. Definitely, definitely. The interesting thing was that 
I completely agree with you. There was a significant subsection of children who actually benefited during the lockdown, who really enjoyed it. And I remember reading an Italian paper about headaches, which actually showed that headache experiences were reduced during lockdown and actually went up again after lockdown ended. Very interesting paper that was. Alison, if it's all right, I'd like to one talk about complexity again in a minute, if that's okay, because I think maybe there's a bigger conversation there. But two, I just want to play devil's advocate a little bit about the takeaway from the suicidal intent ideation and um, those sort of complex patients. I mean, I think what was shown in that paper is that yes, pain has a, a really profound effect and it may be something that leads to those sorts of behaviours. But equally, you know, we have lots of chronic pain patients who don't do that. And so would it be that, you know, we're looking at it the wrong way around in the sense of, you know, are these patients who have a tendency towards suicidal ideation, you know, whatever their mental health presentation might be, but they also have pain. And we're trying to say that pain is the reason that they're doing this. Whereas actually, it's more about the fact that they do have a mental illness, but pain is part of their presentation. And so us dealing with the pain is not necessarily the answer. And we might not be able to deal with the pain until the other things are dealt with. Absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. One of the common, well, not common, but one of the analogies I've been using recently, having just recently gone past bonfire night, was thinking about the child as a whole, a bit like being sat in your garden with one of those small little fire pits where you're toasting your marshmallows. And if something comes along and sprays petrol all over your garden, the whole of your garden's on fire. Now, you can put the lid on the little fire burner and put that bit of fire out, but your garden's still on fire. And that's really thinking of that little fire burner as being the pain in the presentation. And we can do our bits to control that, but it's not going to put the fire out if the rest of the garden's on fire. But in some ways, if you take that analogy a little bit further, <laughs> I mean, if you've got that problem that you've got a fire pit on fire and your garden's on fire, yeah. do we not need to put the fire in the garden out? We need out? to put the fire in the garden out. Yeah, before, you know, yeah. and the fire in the fire pit may or may not go out at the same time. Yeah. You know, so I do worry in chronic pain clinics that we we hold this sort of presentation too much to us. They've somehow, unfortunately, got to our clinic with all the other complexity that's going on around them, which either hasn't been picked up or it's only just presented or, you know, for better or for worse, it's thought that we were the right people to teach it because wherever they've come from, they don't want to treat it. But actually, I do wonder whether we should hold patients like that because I think interdisciplinary management doesn't work in those situations. And so do we need to send them for the correct treatment for that before we get involved and sort of stay our, our treatment for a while or put it on hold. I would totally agree with that. And certainly if you come to my clinic and we as a team identify that your pain is probably part of a mental health presentation, we would totally and utterly defer everything that we do pretty much to say, do you know what? There's only so much time a young person can spend managing their health condition aside of, you know, all the other things they want to do in their life. And we would want you to actually invest all of your time and effort into treating your mental health. Treating that first actually diminishes my problem. I will have less to do. That's great. But sometimes we find it's, it's how they find the right path. And they need to be acknowledged that actually it's not that their pain isn't real. Their pain is real. We need to see them and help them to understand that their pain experience is absolutely as valid as anybody else's. But there may not necessarily be something physical coming up from the body 
to drive it and maintain that pain, that pain, that absolutely valid pain experience can be being maintained or held by everything else that's going on about them, including their mental health conditions. And so it actually helping them to work out how they can get support from that. It's fine for us to say, actually, this is a cancer problem and it may well be a cancer problem. But if your local cancer service has a three-year waiting list, we need to help them look to see, well, actually, what other support is there for your mental health that will start to help you, even if it's not completely curative, whilst we're trying to deal with how to get you assessed by the CAMS team in a timely fashion? Can you access counselling support through your local community, through your school? Having a look for any and every option that's available. So if you had a, a sort of the magic wand or the blank check... Oh. Talk about this group of patients in particular now rather than just generally for pain. How would you want them sorted? You know, if you could do what what I wanted to do, I would love to be able to have even more people in the clinic with us as part of our team. So that alongside clinical psychology, we also have support and access to child psychiatry, that we can have input from a social worker, that we can have a youth worker to help with the social prescribing and that those sort of like more social interactions, I'd want it all. I agree with you. I I think the complexity of the patients that we're seeing, I think it's very difficult for us to justify not having a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. or not having psychiatry provision available for our patients. It's almost unsustainable in some ways for a group of our patients to keep being seen by us if we don't have that. Mm -hmm. Which brings me back to the other point I was going to make about complexity. Because I 100% agree with what you were saying about the pandemic and that's made it more complex. But I do think we were getting more complex we were. B- before. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if your journey through chronic pain and comrade the same. When I started, I was seeing very simple, straightforward presentations of chronic pain. And in the, the time since then, the complexity, I don't just do not see those patients anymore. Yeah, totally, yeah, agree. totally agree. Which is maybe is a good thing because they're being seen in the community, treated early don't need that escalation of intervention, don't need the more expensive healthcare that comes with it. But equally, we seem to have therefore collected a different population of patients. And I just wonder if that's you know, what you're seeing as well. It is absolutely what we're seeing. I mean, we, we were starting to see that increase in complexity before the pandemic, and it's increased exponentially since then, but it didn't start because of the pandemic. It feels like it's added on. And I think what we, in terms of the complexity, what we always need to keep in the back of our minds is the context of society has changed significantly over the last 10 years now as well. So we have more poverty. We have more people with financial difficulties. We have more people with niche-based food banks. People need to go to, what are they called? Heat banks. Mm. It's quite incredible, of course, how that's changed. But also the context has changed in terms of children's services. Namely, that we know, as you mentioned, and that CAMS is no longer able to pick patients up. So patients who we used to send to CAMS can no longer be sent to CAMS, which puts us in a very difficult position. Do we treat mental health issues? Do we not treat mental health issues? And then the other context that has changed quite significantly is social services. That the social services budgets have be cut quite significantly and they can't do the kind of things that they used to do any longer. And I apologise here to any listeners from outside the UK, but this is the UK context that we're kind of having to deal with. And as a consequence, we are seeing more complex patients as well. And we're having to face difficult decisions about who to treat. 
and who not, not to treat or who not to treat yet. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I, probably my third take home thing was listening to one of the speakers to say it was okay to say that we should at times take the pain card off the table. That was the phrase that she used to acknowledge that a young person has pain but actually, there are much more important things that need to be seen and worked on whilst the pain is there. We cannot stop the pain, but actually, if these other areas were worked on, their quality of life will improve, their pain is likely to diminish. We can pick up the pieces afterwards if we need to. And I think that was quite empowering for somebody to actually be able to stand there and say that when we've often thought about it. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we had a discussion, didn't we, later on about yes. you know what we do with the patient who we feel is not either engaging or not finding our treatment efficacious. And a worry we all have is about discharging. If we discharge, where do they go? Yeah. But I think it's also right to have that conversation with the young people and the families and acknowledge that a pain is a part of their lives. And there are some young people who just aren't ready to deal with that pain yet and giving them that choice to say, you know, it's okay. You know, this is what we have on offer. Come back to us when you're ready. Does society let them do that though? Because we, you know, one of our biggest drivers is around things like school attendance. Mm. And so it's a difficult conundrum then. You know, if we say to someone, you're not ready yet, come back when you are ready, but then they don't do that socialisation. They don't go to school. They don't achieve what they might achieve now how do we square that circle we can't make somebody get better in our line of work they have to be willing to do the therapy they have to be willing to engage in conversation with the talking therapies it can't be talked at it has to be a conversation to help them with their thinking you know and we don't have enough resource in our service to keep offering things that are just not being attended, when we think, well, you know, we could help you and make it very clear, we could help you if that's what you are ready for and saying that it's okay for them. And do you think most families accept the offer of help? Most do, I think. I think also we have to, again, acknowledge the fact that no matter how hard the parents want it, the young person has to be ready for it as well. And sometimes just, just having that choice it's kind of empowering for them, you know, to make them feel like, yes, I'm doing this because I want to do it, not because everybody else around me is telling me I have to do it. So it can almost be a part of the therapeutic journey in its own right, I feel. Maybe I'm a bit naive. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think one of the nicest things to hear in clinic is often when people, families, children have been from one service, from one doctor to the next, and they come to us, they come to you. They listen to what we have to offer. They listen to the explanations that we have for what is going on. And they say, phew, this is the first time that we feel that we've been listened to. And they take on board the messages and they're ready to work with us. Is that an experience that you Absolutely. often have? Absolutely. Yes. And that's the ones that are often, often quite worried when they come to clinic because they've been told, previously that it's all in their head and they've taken that away as meaning this isn't real when it clearly is real. And what do you say when people say all the other people I've seen have said or one or two have said it's all in my head and of course it's that one negative experience 
that they remember. Yeah. What do you say? It's explaining, might get myself into trouble for saying this, but sometimes it's explained that if you've been to go and see a surgeon, if a surgeon can't find something to operate on, they don't often say, there is nothing I can operate on. They sometimes say, there's nothing wrong with you. But that's not the same thing, actually. Even if they think they're saying that, they don't always, not always what the families take away. And it's being able to work through with the child and with the family to acknowledge how bad their pain is, how much it disrupts their life, how very real it is, but helping them to understand that not all pain is being generated because of tissue damage. And actually the places where we need to do the work aren't the places where the surgeon would need to do the work. I think that sounds good. What about families who say, okay, we've heard this before. Now you're a doctor, can you help me? Can you help my child and give my child some medication, please? Sometimes we can. And sometimes it's not going to improve their quality of life. And I often have very open conversations with families about what effects a medicine might have, the good effects and the bad effects, and what it's going to achieve. There are very few conditions out there where actually a medicine is going to be curative. At best, it might make therapy manageable. And most of the time, it's about helping the young person to do the work that they need to do to get themselves better. But acknowledging very much it's us helping them to do the work. And if they don't? Again, it goes back to their their choice, really, I think. So, Alison, what do you think, are, what's the value of pain management? It's about returning the child and their family to full function in society, in a nutshell. I mean, quite often by the time they're referred to at our clinic, they're really struggling to attend school, they're missing out on their education, they're missing out on the socialisation, it's had an impact on the family. Usually quite often one of the parents has a job that's on, on the line with the amount of time they've had to take off to be with their child who can't attend school. And they use a huge amount of healthcare. And actually, if we can help them to manage their pain, contain it, brings the family back together, gets them back into school, they have those self-management skills to help keep them active and enjoying life ongoing. They're going to finish their education, go out into society, be productive, satisfied and have a good quality of life. Why would you not do it? That sounds very good. Our final question to you. What do you find most satisfying about your work? It's when they do just that. They come back and tell you that they don't need to come and see you anymore, that they're back out. They come and tell you about the things they've done over the summer and how they've been back out with their friends and they've been to the concerts and they're now thinking about university and moving on. And it's just wonderful. It's such a nice way to finish our first interview with our first guest on our podcast. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alison. Well, Conrad, that was a really interesting conversation. Um, I enjoyed that very much. How about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it very much. I thought she came across as very eloquent, actually, and very wise in many respects. I really liked her human approach to... Her patients, really. She wants to understand her patients and wants to learn more about their experience. And she didn't seem to have a very technical approach. 
either. She's clearly done an amazing amount of work. She's developed her own pain service. She talked quite a lot about the complexity of patients. And clearly that's something that came out during the day today. Namely, we are seeing increasingly complex patients. And I loved her analogy of the barbecue that was on fire. But actually, it's not just the barbecue that's on fire. It's the garden and potentially even bit of the house that's on fire as well. I thought it was a really, really helpful analogy of the complexity of the patients, that pain is often just part of the picture that we're seeing. What do you think? No, I, I totally agree. And I must admit, I, the main point Alison said she took away from the meeting today was just the usefulness of all of us being able to be in a room together. And I, you know, that's what I was feeling all throughout the day. We had so many wonderful people who came in terms of the speakers that we had. And then so many people we've all known for a long time who have had so much experience in pediatric pain. And to be able to sit around a room, think about all these sort of complex presentations that we see and the complex scenarios that we come across and just have lots of different ideas as to how we should try and solve them. I think that's so important. You know, in a small speciality such as ours, we can all get lost in our own bunkers, I think very much so. And so being able to discuss things with people who are having the same experiences as you are just so important. And I think in the long run, more than anything, that benefits our patients. It really does. Completely agree. Completely agree. And I noticed, Glyn, I hope you don't mind me pointing this out, that we both seemed a little bit stumped at one point and we didn't quite know what to say. Do you remember what point that was? Well, I suppose that's pockets in female trousers, I suppose, yes. Um, I, you know, I've never had to live without pockets, so maybe I just can't relate to the, the things that Alison has to go through on a daily basis. It was strange, though, because um, I think that blindsided us, basically, didn't it? Because if we asked something that irritates her, I was really expecting something different. I was not expecting that answer. I liked her answer, though. I liked her answer, though. Yeah. It was very, very good. I think that really sets, sets us up well. You know, this has been a pilot podcast. And it's been a bit of a journey of exploration for the two of us. And having someone as good as Alison as a guest has been a, you know, a real help for us and a fantastic thing to do. And it, it makes us sort of want to get on to the next podcast. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, Glenn, we have both thought about this quite hard and we've got quite a lot of topics lined up for future podcasts. And we are actively recruiting people for future podcasts as well. So stay tuned, all of you. But in the meantime, if any of you would like to contact us with your questions, please just send us an email to whatapainpodcast at gmail.com. Comrade, I'll catch up with you soon. Okay, thank you very much, Glyn. See you next time.